Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking with Holly Thor Bjornsson, who is the CEO of Lockwood Publishing, a games company based out of England. In this discussion with Holly, we talk about the industry life cycles in gaming. For instance, how the console and PC era transitioned into mobile games and how that's very similar to what is happening now with a lot of folks moving over to Web3. And then we spend some time talking about our own experiences as as entrepreneurs. And I want to remind folks here listening to the podcast, um, in July and August, there won't be new podcast episodes. So I'm going to take a quite a break here but i will be back in early september with new episodes but yeah here's the episode with holly after a few words with our sponsors this podcast is sponsored by zebedee zebedee lets you power your games with bitcoin to add play to earn mechanics quickly and easily you can now introduce tiny lightning fast micropayments that work natively in game something that wasn't previously technically or financially possible. The result is higher engagement from players, more time spent in-game, and more efficient use of your marketing budget. The best part is you don't need to learn all the ins and outs of blockchain to use Zebedee or to worry about managing all the financial hurdles. Their custom SDK and API let you easily add Bitcoin rewards into the games you're working on or the ones you've already created. You're limited only by your imagination. And the polished developer dashboard gives you direct visibility into the impact that your in-game payments are having. Zebedee handles all the rest. By building infrastructure on top of the Bitcoin protocol, Zebedee is creating interoperability between developers and studios, allowing the entire games industry to share in the same open standard for sending and receiving value. Head on over to zeb.gg forward slash egd to learn more and to sign up for access. All right, Holly, we're recording. Welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks to you, Kim. Thanks for inviting me. Sure thing. It's going to be a lot of cool, interesting things to talk about regarding the games industry and startups and everything. But to to kick things off, can you in two minutes share your origin story and how you made your way into gaming and to, to found Lockwood? Yeah, so I'm from Iceland and uh, I came to the UK in 1990 to study architecture and before that actually i used to come to the uk i used to borrow dancing i used to uh <laughs> i used to come and dance little dance trips yeah i thought that would tell you everything because yeah i don't know it's obviously kind of entrepreneurs maybe people are starting off and yeah so maybe i'll just tell you all kinds of random stuff about that so yeah, yeah. please do okay. So I, I kind of, uh, yeah, I kind of used to come to the UK, uh, you know, being in Iceland, it was kind of like, um, you know, I was born in uh, 67, like ages ago. And so you were kind of on the, on the outside of the kind of <laughs> known universe almost. So when uh, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of one of the generation of people who kind of started to become aware of um, games through literally like uh, something like Pac-Man and the, and the local corner shop, you know, sort of thing. And, and then you had the Spectrum, but Iceland, yeah, Iceland was kind of uh, out there on the periphery. So yeah, it's been a kind of long journey to try to get 
into games in a way. So, and then so I came out to the UK, studied architecture. And uh, when I finished, it was around the time when um, the PlayStation was about to come out. And I used computers quite a bit uh, when I was studying uh, architecture. And, but at the time, you really, the only computers that could do 3D to any level, then there were silicon graphics machines. And I think the setup was like 20 or 40K or something like that at the time. It was crazy. And only places where you could really get them uh, was maybe kind of in film or games so but i was really interested in games anyway uh, and uh and computing so so it wasn't that really a difficult thing and and also i kind of made a strategic decision kind of almost around um where do you want to apply yourself you know games were like a, a new upcoming industry whereas architecture was a very established environment and and so i i kind of applied for i saw uh, i saw wipeout there was a wipeout was being advertised and i thought that was really awesome and so I applied for a job at Psygnosis and they, they didn't have anything for me, but the, there was like a startup across the road. They said we were looking for some um, people and they were doing some game. And I, was, I didn't really care what they were doing. I just went for the interview. And that was a bizarre creations. And they, uh, I got the job and, and there was a small team. And uh, there was only one, I think, person on the, on the, on the whole team had ever made a game before. And it was the owner, uh, Martin. And, and, uh, but then when the game came out, I think it became the second biggest selling game in the world the year it came out or something like that something crazy so it was it was formula one 95 on the, on the playstation and so that was kind of how i kind of got into the industry yeah and since then you know always had the kind of entrepreneurial kind of work uh, i think just from family i uh, think my, my dad was an entrepreneur and and, uh, and so on so it kind of was wanted to do my own thing and then the thing first thing that i set up was around just kind of around the dot com like just after that was the first company and i was kind of made me think about that actually because i was reading by your background and yeah. uh so i set up a company uh, it didn't work out and i got some investment set up a company ran it uh, totally crashed it and uh, went through like this kind of hellfire of uh, like initiation I think I look at it back it was pretty brutal and and uh, yeah it was, that was a really interesting experience of course and uh, and uh, you know you talk about a lot about resilience and things like that things you have to learn when you're not you know if you want to do your own thing it's not all just you know singing and dancing all the time it's just uh, yeah it's a, it's a brutal journey at times so yeah that was definitely um, something I, you know I can draw back on and look back on and then after that, I kind of worked, you know, did a lot, a lot of work actually in Formula One games because I kind of got a bit typecast, I guess. Yeah. But I still enjoyed it. But, and then eventually set up a, a, a studio or, or it wasn't a studio, it was just in the, in the, in, in the, in the living room kind of set up uh, here in Nottingham. I think it was around uh, 2000, kind of seven-ish. And it, or, or kind of roughly, it was kind of roughly around the time when social was emerging. So I had spent a lot of time in console. But I could see that console was going to go into a, um, a period of, uh, shall we say, crunch, I think, and definitely in Europe. I could see that, you know, and, and then you had the emergence of new platforms like, PC, you know, browser stuff, you know, and social was, was coming up. And I could see the emergence of these kind of new markets. And this is obviously before um, mobile really kicked off and so on. But we actually started another company called, it was called Outso in the beginning. So we were trying to find a way to they, i mean it was impossible to raise money in the uk at the time when when we set it up so we just had to find okay where where is where do we find the the first thread of revenue and you know outsourcing was starting and i had used it quite successfully in my work and uh you know built up a decent amount of kind of knowledge in the space and so we set about so and the idea was there we it was like an outsource management uh, solution thing and the uh, and the uh, and uh so we did so that managed outsourcing outsourcing mostly for people uh, just to get some money in and at the same time we were kind of 
looking at what are the opportunities you know out there for us with people with our skill set and one of the things you kind of noticed that was like social networks you had like myspace friendster and so on and then yeah the emergence of facebook and you could see okay they're going to need something for people to do in there and you know like games would be ideal so and then uh, we even did like a little like a poker game which we we were pretty close to actually putting into Facebook, you know, but we ran out of steam before we did that. And obviously we know what happened with Sanger. They, they put their, you know, so I'm not saying we would have been as big as Sanger, but, but at least, you know, I think probably would have been something. So we had some hunches, you know, had some hunches about things changing. And then really with the Lockwood, I mean, the big opportunity was for us when we got a deal with Sony on PlayStation Home. So yeah, we got a, a contract with them. And this is kind of the beginning of PlayStation Home. And, you know, we kind of gradually managed to build the business. We did like 60 projects for them, like Sony and the UK and in the US. And uh, we, you know, say we were kind of the leading, I would say, service provider to them. And we did a lot of partner projects with them, like for the platform, a lot of kind of design also, just some of the experiences they had. Yeah, so we really learned about free-to-play social there uh, coming from console, uh, massive uh, lessons there and really had to change our mindset hugely for that new model. And then subsequently, we so we pivoted the business from work for hire to self-publishing. You could see uh, we kind of convinced uh, Sony that actually Places at Home was a great self-publishing platform. <clears throat> at the time then, it was actually really difficult. There, were, there weren't that many places for grassroots uh, developers to actually find audiences and, and start their earnings of revenues. But actually Home was... Um, brilliant for that because you could actually start developing something and publishing with a very small team like two or three people here and that was uh, i thought that was a really beautiful kind of model for a platform and that we so we yes yeah, so we started there publishing some games uh, some some items and so on and uh we could see that the the, the work of hire was going to dry up and we only wanted to be independent anyway we wanted to move the business forward anyway so uh, doing the self-publishing was something we wanted to do and we managed to pivot the business into that and uh, on, on still on places in home and it's always difficult you know obviously we're on just one platform so we're totally dependent on on that environment and then after that we we the closed places in home we could see that was coming and but before then actually you know before we knew that we had decided to see actually that if something kind of social like this actually worked on a console which is kind of more hardcore you know you think about it you have some really great you know the best games there on, on console look you know so if somebody's choosing to not play their PlayStation games, but actually go into PlayStation Home. <clears throat> we knew there was there was something there, and kind of being free to play, probably a little bit more kind of female oriented. We thought it would be great on on mobile, probably the mobile obviously being the killer social device, and uh, obviously in terms of uh, free to play, obviously massive <clears throat> even then. So that so that's why we kind of decided to do our own, you know, in a way version of you know, obviously the format wasn't new. You had like Second Life and things on browser. And uh, yeah, so we did, we decided to do Avakin. Yeah. Nice. Like there's so much there to unpack. I, I wanted to ask you maybe kind of like a concise question about the takeaways. What are your top takeaways from the years that you've now been building Lockwood? Ones that you often think about? Looking back, I think the pivots, like you, you have, because you, you know, you learned your skills, you know, your industry, you know, you have, some, have a passion for something and you set up a company or you, you know, you were the, you know, group of other people you, you embark on. But then the main thing is, is around, I would say, the change in your environment. Like that's, uh, those are probably the, the, the biggest things that you need to think about. Like, you know, it's really your environment because, and also sometimes uh, when you find some success or people find success, it's very easy to post-rationalize. It was because I was so brilliant or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> There's such 
amazing forces out there like look you know even for the best of people like you need to align yourself with the forces that are really you know the change the winds you have to really adjust to what is happening in the market what yeah and and then when the change happens you have to build the resilience a little bit what you talked about before like you have to build resilience you have to ready yourself to make the change you know you have to be ready to take on change and and you, you, can, you can also look at like the big change okay there are some big changes that can obvious but when you're running a business there is change all the time your business is changing you're in the business of change things you know you have a startup and if you have some success you have to scale it up well you changed you know you okay now you only had some investors okay now you you come in some different pressures different perspectives you told them we're going to do something and oh no i know i need to change in a way to to do that you know so but anyway even to stand still you have to change you know i don't think there is such a thing and and that's what i think that's what makes games super exciting super exciting it is the change it is the fact that there is a new opportunity but with the new opportunity that means the unequal side there's also destruction you know and you have to i think those are kind of the things and uh, i think because to to really really i think focus on and, and like you say your your ability to and your company's ability and, and your team's ability to to be ready for it and and uh, to be willing to do it take it on you know, i think that's it's uh it's never easy but uh, yeah i think that's i think yeah thinking back i mean we we had to like like i said earlier we had to pivot a business you know first like i say lots of micro pivots in the beginning like you're looking at okay looking at where the opportunities are but then and then once we got the traction like okay we got the work we hired but then okay now we need to shift over to the the self-publishing and these are two very different types of businesses you know very different and you're kind of managing the transition with you have you have like people like sad because uh, the uh, work for hire is is going down people loved we loved it like we have a great relationship with and so the sadness that because that's going down um, and the shrinking and then you have the other opportunity and at, at the same time you have to manage your resources and the energy like okay how are we going to find the energy to do in a way the thing that pays the bills which is the work for hire and then build the new type of business you know how, how, you, how do you manage that how do you set that up so it's successful you know how do you, and obviously people are people that talk about focus and things like that and then the business and so on. So how do you manage the focus in the business where you're managing downsizing kind of uh, one part of the business and also at the same time taking advantage of a new opportunity? So yeah, these transitions are, yeah, obviously, yeah, challenging. So yeah, I'm kind of quite proud that we've <laughs> we managed to do that. And then the second one where we had to go from kind of console, kind of protected environment almost, we saw it into mobile. And and again, like, you know, oh, it's, you know, it, all, all the psychology around that, oh, the business is dying. Like, oh, you, you just lost all your business. They closed your platform, you know? And then then you kind of go, you know, people people used to call it like uh, the director's pet project. Like the uh, advocate was like, oh, it's, uh, it's never going to work, you know? I mean, you have, you have this dual psychology in that. In the company, there's a sadness about the thing that's going away, and then, but then you have people who are excited about the new thing, and just managing those kind of things, those transitions. In some ways, it's just easy, like think, oh, just you just create a startup, like you know, just forget about, it. just throw it all away, and you know, just forget about it. Yeah. But then I was I was thinking about this actually during a pivot time, which is I think we're in now. Like a, there's a big time. We'll hopefully talk about that later. Is that Maybe there are two, just don't generalize massively here, two, two main scenarios to, to take on like the new mega opportunity. Let's say it's a mega opportunity in the marketplace, like something amazing is going to happen and you want to position yourself for it. And so one of them is obviously it's a startup, it's clean slate, new team, everybody's fresh, everybody's in love, you know, but the other one is like the existing company. And now 
you've got an existing company. Well, what if uh, and what if the company, you know, you have existing companies, they need to pivot. Like, okay, maybe their uh, existing business model is dying or something and they have to pivot, like what happened to us in the past. And, and but your existing company may have something that is actually really useful in the new market, you know, so, but at the same time, they have to manage the, the sadness around the disappearing business model. So you have these two different scenarios. And, and so, yeah, and, and uh, both have advantages and disadvantages, you know, you know, if your existing business has something that is really profound for the, the new model, then yeah, it's going to be transition and, and, and so on. But, uh, but you possibly, quite possibly, depending on what it is in a better scenario for, you know, than the startup, you know, but, you know, possibly, but, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult to generalize, but uh, yeah, there, there might be some advantages there, but only if you can manage the transition. You know, that only that, you know, if you can manage the transition, then it doesn't matter. Totally. Yeah. Then the other thing that, like, with your own company that comes up is like these tough situations where do you recall any kind of situation where you felt that you came away as a battle scarred, but also more anti fragile CEO from tough situations? So many. I don't know how many. It's just a wow. It's just, it's just, an, I don't know. It's just an interesting journey. You go into it setting up a company like thankfully really naively you know like that to send to people like uh, you have a passion for something you uh, want to create something you want to create you know and uh, you go into naively and, and it's going to protect you in a way because if you knew how challenging it can be and difficult and not just from like the work or anything like that you, you work with other people it's a human thing i don't know i can't really think of any any one moment i think there's so many i mean i think it's just like uh, the main thing about it is just like uh, it's the relentlessness of it and how relative everything is. Just new challenges. Whatever stage you reach, you just got new, new wonderful set of challenges that are presented to you. Like, uh, and your success a lot of time also, you know, you create success, but that actually creates uh, huge challenges, like, you know, in any direction. And obviously just going through those challenges. And, and I guess, yeah, it's the thing that creates the resilience. Yeah. I often think about like the situation where my first company shut down as the person who was sort of closing closing the office cleaning yeah. the the rooms unscrewing the screws from the tables yeah i mean yeah i mean that's, that's yeah i don't i don't know like that's uh, it's a really interesting that personal journey but like, that's uh, like i mean like yeah really when i had my start uh, first startup like yeah experiencing like failure at that level is pretty out there you know you go through school and life and you, you know yeah you might you know and you might you have some successes and work and whatever and and then yeah that's a that's a big one that's a big one to go through for sure it's like resistance training we can talk about it mm. but nobody is ever going to learn about it what it's really like without going through a difficulty like that that's yeah we can talk about it all day but you know mm. you guys out there listening there unless you really go through that fire then you're never gonna really understand it or feel it and you're never gonna get the battles because from you know as you go through it but saying that when i when i i mean there are obviously so many uh, stories like this i mean i remember like the around the dot com you know the, the these kind of really massive hype you know almost the, the higher it goes i'm like the worse it is and uh, the expectations are kind of crazy and then you come down and it's uh yeah i imagine a lot of people i remember like in dot com era the, the the there was a lot of interviews out there and people were kind of you know coming through that and, but that what follows this you know gives amounts of you know things are like good things that come out of it i think you know, like in, you know, think about uh, mobile, for example, around uh, in Finland, for example, I guess, 
I think I think the dot com was pretty big and crashing in Nordics. I think it was a lot of activity. There were a lot of startups, and obviously, I guess in Finland there was a lot of them. Obviously, around the mobile operators, and so there was incredible talent and and experience that came out of the dot com. That was my impression, kind of from a little outside. And in overall, the net effect, I think, overall on society is a positive one. People take these things on and. And the learn and the kind of think about like Finland and the, your journey, like when I was looking at it, you know, around like things like Supercell, it's like, well, it's not a coincidence that these great companies came out of Finland because you had, yeah. you had all this creativity and energy and then all the experience then by then. And, and uh, I'm kind of looking at the, I, I don't, to be honest, I'm not an expert in Supercell, like you obviously, but that was my outside view. It's like, yeah, you know, okay, they had a great setup. It was a, but also there was this incredible talent there, like an experience, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of those takeaways from that I like in hindsight can look at my first startup of six years from 2005 to 2011. There was actually a lot of support locally, even though the industry was very new, like games industry was basically console. There was nothing. Well, if you think about like fundraising, it was impossible for, for a gaming startup back then. So we were really early. But everybody was extremely supportive for newcomers, new entrepreneurs, new companies. And maybe I, I didn't have kind of like a sit, like I couldn't see that, hey, it's not everywhere the same where you get this kind of support. But like, I'm just looking at like how, how long we basically got all the government grants to push on, to keep going forward. And they really gave us several years to, to experiment and try out things and learn. And then, you know, the, the next company, like Next Games, did a lot better. So, yeah, I mean, that, and that's, that's also very interesting that the ecosystem support, you know, it yeah. is so important. Like when we were going from like home to, to mobile, there was like a period where we, we, we did get a lot of downloads, but we, you had, you got this kind of like the gray zone where you kind of, your revenue is going down and you, you have some traction, but the revenues are not high enough to cover your costs, you know, like, so and you can see there's an opportunity there and uh, we were able to get like a couple of grants, like one alone and a, and a grant uh, kind of locally. And these kind of little things, they really matter actually. So the UK was, it's pretty tough to get investment around gaming. So yeah. And uh, I, I don't know, like you were saying there, yeah, like in Scandinavia, like in your scenario, yeah, it, the fact that there wasn't like a VC environment, there wasn't like an investment environment. And, and obviously, partially that's because I guess it was, it's, I think usually you have successful entrepreneurs who enter the, you know, they started investing. So if you don't, but if you didn't, if you were the first entrepreneurs then in the market, then obviously, you know, you we went there already. So that, that is important. And thankfully, a lot of people are tuned more into it, but I still think Europe is on a back foot really a lot of the time, unfortunately, compared to yeah. the US and Asia. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we'll get, get there soon. I, I think it's like I myself spending time now basically doing a lot of investment deals. I feel that there's a lot of pull from outside as well to Europe now for the European startups. So yeah, things are changing for sure. Do you see, yeah. sorry, you see like well, like investment coming into Europe? or, or Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen maybe it's still a bit like experimentation because like what I'm feeling when I'm dealing with somebody on the US West Coast, like a startup, I do think about the, the time difference and how that will affect me in providing them help on a regular basis. I think that's that's the number one key. We're still living like Finland is 10, 10 hours ahead of California. So that's that's a lot of 
juggling with schedules and everything. So there is that which we just can't do a lot about. So I think that's that's going to be a staying factor. But but I still think like there's there are companies that want to go after the opportunity of what is available in the Nordics, what's available in in Central Europe, like just looking into those pockets where they can find the talent that they want to back. So I've seen that happen more and more. I mean, I think that uh, no, that's that's. I mean, that's good. I mean, you know, and we obviously we we had investment from uh, like Tencent and so on. So for sure, it's much more of a global stage we're on for sure. You know, there's like some jealousy there towards uh, people on the west coast in Asia. I mean, yeah. I think there's definitely like the still the the big scale is like really you know like there is some there's some scale thing i think that's kind of what it feels like to me like you know around on the on the west coast and 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 asia as well there there is that uh, it feels like europe is still a little bit more kind of cottagey you know and it's interesting actually when you look at uh, web3 landscape for example if you yeah yeah you know it'd be interesting to hear what your thoughts on that because we got these kind of i would say these kind of mega things that are happening and I'm kind of a little bit worried about like Europe not positioning itself correctly and the way it thinks about funding these mega trends, engaged in those mega trends. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's go into that topic of the future of the games industry and the, the near horizon that is coming. What are the most exciting areas in gaming that you think are surfacing right now? Um, I think you know the answer. <laughs> I think it's, it's <laughs> web three, isn't it? Like it's wow, it's so crazy that that yeah i talked to a lot yeah. i talked a lot to a lot of people about that obviously in the company but on, on the outside and friends and family even like i don't yeah i don't i don't think i mean interesting to you know think about see what you think about it. i mean I, I definitely think it to me it looks like the biggest thing that i will have experienced in the environment like i, I don't mm-hmm. i don't think the forces that are kind of at play are so colossal that I don't think even free to play, even almost like the commercial. I, I think the internet obviously was the internet was the big thing, but I think kind of just commercially, the uh, in terms of just the abrupt and immediate change, I think it was maybe a bit slower around the birth of the internet for games, you know, to say. But I think for yeah. games, like in particular, I think the Web3 feels like just from looking at the science and uh, what can potentially happen it just looks like it has this incredible potential it's, it's just crazy you know yeah yeah i've been thinking so much about the like the the fascinating thing here is that i was spending a lot of time thinking about the facebook canvas social games like that transition that happened from all of a sudden going from this what we call destination sites being the online games in 2006, 2007, 2008, when all of a sudden all the the growth was happening, if you were inside Facebook on the the PC desktop, and that that was like really crazy. Like you had Cityville, 100 million monthly actives as the peak product in the in that category, and then it quite quickly went away into shifting to mobile in just a few years' time, where all, all the audience was in mobile. And that felt like this is like this is the optimal model. And I think what one of the reasons was that we were waiting for like always a new platform to emerge. Like the platform usually meant like a device that was different from the previous where you were doing things or like a very different environment. That doesn't matter with Web3 that much, but there's other things at play like the ownership and the, the community aspects, which are very new. Like if you think about like you were talking about going from work from hire to self-publish and that transition, but like that was 
already getting the, the developers closer to the player. And now I think this is the, the second step in getting even closer to the players that we have ever been to. So that's that's the exciting part there for sure for me. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's just a multidimensional thing. I think it was a lot easier for people to point on like free to play and say, oh yeah, you know, you, you know you're not paying for the game, you're, it's free and you know, like, it's kind of easier thing for people to conceptualize and look at, you know. And uh, so when people look at Web3, it's kind of, it's almost like people are searching for something they can point at it. Is that? Or this, or that, like, or it's like that. No, it's like this. It's like, and people are kind of, but it actually is a much more, which I think is a really good sign. Actually, it's much more multidimensional than that. And uh, I was, I was just kind of trying to think, like, what are, what are the kind of the the big things that are there and that can happen or are happening and so on? What are the big trends and and and, and obviously in relation to kind of how we position our company? Like, how do we adjust to this? You know, where where is the? How do we look at the opportunity? And so. Let's say kind of little think about maybe a little kind of tidbits, you know, like for example, it's, it's I, I think it's probably it's quite likely that in maybe five years' time, certainly in ten years' time, probably even maybe in faster that most young people coming through towards working age, they will have wallets with NFTs and tokens and and now and, and just thinking what 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 does it mean? Does it mean anything for us? Like, well, okay, so then well basically they th- that's like an on-ramp to like so, like the new this new kind of banking system, like the, the new financial system. I don't want to call it banking system, but it's more like the new kind of social monetary operating system, which is around blockchain. And yeah. what does that mean? Is like then, and if you look at like the ecosystem, even as it is now. So I was talking to someone in banking, and they about this kind of on ramp thing, and he was telling me that the affiliate fees for a banking customer, I think around the, some of the credit cards, I think it's like two or three thousand dollars or something. It's crazy. So. So essentially, if if games become like an on-ramp to this new way of you know moving your money about, like then the LTV is crazy. And uh, I remember like uh, people said that maybe thinking, well, why is like a banking is boring? You know, why does it relate to what I'm doing? You know, well, the, it's gonna come straight into user acquisition because somehow this money is gonna end up in the UA equation that the value chain and uh, probably ultimately that value is gonna be passed in the Web3 environment to the actual customer. The customer is going to end up getting that affiliate, you know, somehow. And it reminds me a little bit when when we kind of started, we did on mobile, we did uh, four different apps on four different platforms. One of them was like a poker game. And I noticed on the, and it was like probably the, at the time, it was probably the best experience we came up with, but we, we got like zero, there was zero traffic. There was like zero traffic because social casinos and real money casinos, they really just completely uh, red ocean that total area and the story you know even with a vastly superior experience it was like you couldn't touch it so you can't ignore uh, this this force you know around this you know you just can't ignore it you have to be aware of it and, and if you have like a web 2 let's say you take the, the like two apps uh, that are the same you i think you use the like the web 3 version of anything like a uh, class royal or something you know like or it doesn't matter what what it is like like uh, you know web 2 version is not in this value chain but three version, a kind of similar game is in this value chain, your competitor is going to absolutely wipe you out. Wipe you out. Because at the end of the day, they're part of some. And, and if you look at actually who's uh, the pe- big people are putting money into um, Web3 gaming, like there are some big, it's all around the um, that side either of the ecosystem, like uh, the, the big exchanges and so on. They're not putting money in the game you know, purely because they love gaming. I'm not sure they love gaming, but it's it's because it's, a, it's the front of the funnel. You know? and, and so that's that isn't it so that force is it's incredible so you have to kind of think about that at least you know have to be aware of it and then then there are some other really big things obviously which 
kind of around I mean, one of the one I started when, when the crash happened in Iceland, I was kind of like looking at in 2008, I don't remember. I, I kind of started like thinking, oh, shit, you know, I don't really know anything about money. Come on, seriously, like, you know, really, what is it? I mean, what the hell is going on? So I kind of started kind of educating myself a little bit about it. And then uh, obviously kind of really got into kind of what's happening on crypto and so on. And uh, as you can see, you know, kind of reading what people are saying about it. And obviously you had this thing about all oh, decentralization and, you know, of, of, you know, money and all that stuff. And, and so let's say if that's a thing and it looks like it's kind of like a thing and you got this thing where money uh, was institutionalized. You had your central banks and so on. In the beginning, the money was uh, the kind of little societies, small communities deciding that something had some sort of representative value in some way. And uh, there are still actually some of these communities, actually. There's a thing called in the UK called Totnes Pound, for example, like small currency in the UK around uh, people who live in Totnes. Uh, and that's a very community-driven approach to creating uh, money and stuff like that. But then uh, what we have experienced mostly in our lives is obviously the big centralized uh, money supply, central banks and and, uh, and so on, and banks. And But then you had the privatization through ICOs. and But obviously, I think shares and things like that, they represent value and so on. So you have that. But now you have this kind of like a trend towards uh, total decentralization, like almost like just the individual just issues their own money it's like you know so it's like that, that's and and then it's like oh that's crazy how can how can the individual issue their own money well well actually in the even in the fiat system it is really the individual issues money because you go to the bank the bank will lend you money against your future earnings uh, potential so they actually literally create the money at that point so we already are the source of money creation uh, it's just that the banks and the organizations they're looking after it for us and very kindly sometimes it doesn't go so well but then NFTs are essentially social money. So NFTs are the, the issuer is represent uh, issuing, uh, and strangely, it's very similar to actual money because if you think about like a ten pound note, what is that? It's a piece of paper. It's got a picture on it that represents something about the issuer, and uh, it's got some sort of serial number on it. And it's and it's a picture of the issuer and uh, even the person who's kind of represents. It, yeah, it's kind of personalized, and then it, and it has some graphics on it that represents something to do with the cultural values or, or whatever it's like. That's just an NFT, you know. And then and then I would talk to people. It's like, oh god, this is this is nonsense. Like, you know, how can an individual issue money? And, and it's like, well, the what's behind it? If you think about it, like a social currency, because uh, your NFTs value is to a large extent um, determined by your social following. And your social um, status and your social currencies like if uh, these are two two things are very interlinked and then you think okay there is a big industry there i can't go to the bank and say hey I'm, i've got a million uh, youtube followers i want to build it up to 10 or 20 or whatever i can't borrow money against that in a traditional bank but i can borrow money uh, against my audience and they can participate in it with me you know and they and if they buy my nfts or my token early on they they're literally uh, taking part in it with me, you know, uh, the journey. And so, yeah, so there's some big things there. Uh, and that the whole industry, obviously, the social marketing industry, uh, the money that sits there was now obviously Facebook and uh, Omega or the big guys, they pretty much keep all of it. They keep all the data and uh, all, the, all the money. Yeah. I think it's about 150 billion a year or something like that. And but the, and, the, and the beautiful thing about NFTs or, or, or crypto is that it actually... It also provides a mechanism for the issue anyway to borrow against your future, you know, because people come in early on buying into your story. In a way, what they're doing, they, they are early on, they're coming in, you know, they get at a good price, you know, it's because, well, they're supporting it, they're going to help you make it happen. And uh, that means you're more likely to be able to make it happen because you kind of, you borrowed against your future earnings and you can invest it in your present situation. And so you're not only unlocking 150 billion, you're unlocking the 10 
years uh, into the future of that. That we, so we're talking like trillion, trillion dollars, trillions of dollars, whatever industry like that's gonna potentially gonna get unlocked. And I had the feeling that when uh, that money starts to get unlocked to creators, the people are actually are creating this like you know the it's you know the influencers the you know the people who create communities you know they web3 is gonna give them a essentially a rev share of you know of, of what they've created like like that's fair you know like there's a sense of fairness and but i just think the the industry and the innovation and stuff that's going to come out of that is potentially it's potentially going to be absolutely explosive you know it's going to be just astonishing potentially i mean there's some other disruptor obviously you have the app stores and uh, they Obviously, you know, the 30%, that's quite a lot of, that's a big chunk of cash um, sitting there. Obviously, some people are trying to dig into, <laughs> dig into that. You got the disruption around banking. That's a big disruptor there. And uh, like we talked a little bit about earlier, and then kind of going back a little bit on the, around the, this innovation around the tokens, you know, I think people, it feels like there's, that's, that's like an, an innovation. You're buying a utility and at the same time, you're getting some sort of share in the upside of the success of the, the venture you're buying in. And I was, trying, I was explaining this to a friend of mine who, is, who sells furniture. And I was saying to him, well, what if when people buy your furniture, they're buying like a micro share in your business? I mean, they, they're going to feel so like loyal to you. Like, look, you're giving them a share in your business. I mean, and, and then when you do well, then maybe you, you pay them a little dividend. So like that whole concept around that is uh, incredibly rich. And uh, you have customers for life. I mean, you know, and, you know, and, and also, um, and also the disruptions just around shares, trading shares. Like, why can't they go on Amazon and buy Amazon shares? Like, it's just like, it's just crazy, isn't it? Like, why, why what, what is it? Is it dangerous to buy shares? Well, and no, it's because uh, it's uh, a protected market, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, people need to get the brokerage fees, the banks, you know, there's lots of people who have vested interest in, in keeping those, you know. So again, that's another disruptive uh, area of disruption. So yeah. well, basically what I'm saying, like, there are just so many things that, that have the potential of getting unlocked that, and, and games being like you know being such a central part in the mass adoption of this that's an incredible Venn diagram that uh, you'd be crazy to ignore it you know yeah yeah that, that's like something i wanted to talk to you about like you've been in gaming for a while and you've seen the resistance for for game developers like why do you think so many gamers and game developers are so anti the whole crypto movement uh, is it just because of the ideology of what the games should be about or like, what are your thoughts? I can, I can share mine. I, I think I think a lot of people are kind of like I did. I don't remember like like obviously when free to play happened. I mean, and there was a it's a very emotional thing. Like you know, this I, th- I think it's complicated. I don't I don't think it's kind of like maybe uh, one thing. But uh, I remember like free to play singer came onto the stage and they they did the Facebook games and and uh, some people were saying oh they were either kind of borrowing the ideas from other people whatever like there was like. It was there was a it was a very strong emotional reaction to it, and it kind of felt like it was like made worse by the fact that uh, they made so much money out of it and made so much success out of doing something that like a purist maybe game developer like you know uh, would feel like was kind of like the wrong way to treat the players or something. Like that. I, I don't know, like something uh, you know. But basically, I mean, there's some strong values there. Like people go into games because ultimately they want to create, they want to do something good. I think you know, like they want to create something of value. You know, they want to create something that has some sort of form of integrity, you know, some something that, they, you know, uh, isn't just about money and stuff like that. So I definitely can strongly kind of relate to that. And so when somebody uh, does something that, that kind of feels like it kind of goes against those values, 
Um, people feel really uh, strongly about that. But then I think people, obviously, when you look back at it now, like, well, that was just the beginning. Like, look, people, it, technology is, is what it is. You can use it for whatever, you know, you can use it for, uh, and a lot of the outcome is, it depends on your values, you know. So for blockchain, I look at the blockchain and the, the Web3 is uh, in a way a mechanism for, for sharing, you know, like, like it's, uh, I know the, uh, there are some projects out there and things where, it kind of doesn't look like it's, you know, the values aren't there that people kind of uh, relate to. But I see the real strength of uh, Web3 is actually around sharing and uh, with the players, with the creators, with the communities in the creation and their success and all, all of uh, the things you're making is actually a mechanism for, for to form a stronger bond actually with your audience and uh, and a fairer one because uh, with a premium kind of mobile or whatever yeah, it, this kind of uh, a kind of digital the, the thing about reselling your game or your assets kind of went away you know it was there before and uh, kind of the sense of the ownership thing and now now we can introduce that back and that's kind of really what i'm kind of focus on like it's a nice way it's a great mechanism for sharing with our players and like another thing that comes maybe a little bit into the disruptive thing is that the in web 2 is actually quite uh, expensive to to paybacks to players at scale because of kyc and uh, you know so if players are doing something good or, or or on social doing something good for the platform or and the platform or whatever want to share some of those revenues or success with the, with the users it's actually very expensive because of kyc and it's very slow and so you have these thresholds and you know we only pay you over this and that with with web3 you have this uh, opportunity around blockchain to do small payouts at scale you know at low cost and that's a really big thing and yeah so that, i think that's uh, that's kind of roundabout kind of how i um, think but i understand why people get i mean i was i am i remember feeling actually what is this you know <laughs> i was like yeah, yeah and yeah. also they, they also like they play a huge amount of it's all about the data and it kind of felt like it came across a little bit like wow people these are people you know the people aren't just data you know like like it's so there was there was some um, some communication there and uh maybe it could have been a little bit better or something like that i don't know but uh but uh yeah i mean i i can understand it and i do i do do feel like, yeah people are feel emotionally like they feel just angry about it and so like you know I, th- I think it's just purely because of the it feels like it's in the front of the values but uh, to me it's not uh, what the long-term uh, potential of web3 is yeah i think there's like so many steps from where we are right now to seeing where free to play has evolved in the decades that it has been around. So it's like when you're early, there's a lot of experimentation. There's also some scams that can be happening. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's like in the industry life cycle of web three gaming, like we're in the, you know, the life cycle just started. So it's kind of early. Yeah, the scams. I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, you could say probably in everything, you know, the there's some good and some bad. And at the end of the day, it's only, you know, it, it is only what we, we do with it. You know, we, we have the power to shape it and do stuff with it that is uh, not a scam. And I'm sure you and everybody, you know, is, is involved in Web3 is like not planning to go out and scam anyone and uh, things like that. And, and it, but sometimes I kind of read articles or something and people are kind of go, you kind of you know there is definitely sometimes like a bit of a bias towards looking at stuff that confirms my you know confirmation bias you know look like you can go oh you know oh yeah and you end up with a long laundry laundry list of why uh, it's all bad and uh, i probably do the same on the other side i'll end up with a long list of things you know (laughs) but you know it's the same as everything there's good and bad and you know at the end of the day it's within our power to do you know use it for good really you know that's exactly the case when you've seen these new platforms emerge what, what do you think usually stays the same in gaming, even though things change? I think it's the fundamental kind of just human desire to create and 
share your creations with other people. I think that's that's just that. I think that's people come together to create something. I, th- I think that I feel like you know it's a really rich creative format. You know, and uh, that is constantly evolving. And yeah, I think I think that it's just like that, that basic motivation when people get into it. Uh, you know, let's face it, most like for example, developer programmers, developers programmers. I mean, they've done a lot more money in you know in finance. It's <laughs> like so people people are like a lot more, most uh, a lot of people games. I mean, you know, yeah, they could earn a lot more money somewhere else. They're not doing it for the money. Like you know, people are doing it because there's something really uh, lovely about creating creating things. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think even the the projects that have the Ponzi tokenomics set up weren't weren't going after that most of the time. So they they definitely wanted to create something that lasts. Yeah. But I guess like we're f- like for play to earn, like still figuring out what are the the real models there. Yeah, I mean that's uh, I mean it's so complicated, isn't it? Like wow, that's maybe something mm. that maybe is introduced some maybe slightly more of a challenge for people starting off. Like in my three is like. The complication of managing in-game currency economy now with the addition of Web <laughs> three blockchain, <laughs> uh, the complications yeah. just it got just uh, incredibly more complicated, doesn't it? So it's like uh, even just from like the pitching and whatever, like you know, setting up your your, your business plan. Okay, now you need to add the whole tokenomics thing and, and uh, think about how it's you know, and then you almost like have to model it and then just realize actually this is gonna this is not gonna happen like this. Is <laughs> it's like it has a life of its own. You know, probably going to be a lot more stories around that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's you know, like you're saying there, like you know, I, I don't think anyone sets out and those guys set out to do that. I'm pretty sure there may be some people who did, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's easily it is it easily quick and quickly takes a life of its own. You know, for sure. Yeah, it's like we're at that stage where you're applying the decentralized finance project learnings into a game project, which might not. In two years, it will look like, oh, this didn't make any sense. Or there might be certain aspects that we yet don't know that will stick around until the, li- the whole industry life cycle ends. So it's, it's interesting times. Yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, you must see so many projects and ideas and things. Kind of people just coming around to how started to think about this. And yeah. And, and I think it's quite possibly also a little bit of a challenge around like what I was saying earlier around the values, like, okay, why do I have to think about all this money stuff? I just want to make a game. What is this? Yeah. What is this? It's just, it's just kind of spoiling it a bit. Like, you know, the, the whole kind of pure, the pure kind of concept of being a creator. And, you know, so it is, it maybe taints it a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Holly, before we go to the final questions, like a question about companies, can you tell me what are some characteristics of of the founders of games companies that you've observed maybe closely? Ones that have built successful companies, kind of those characteristics in your mind, what would they be? I think the one that maybe sticks in my mind is maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe it's not so positive. I don't know, like, but it's, it's just this, I think it's like an obsession. You know, I think you have to be obsessed. It's um, comes, you know, a little bit into this kind of thing about your initial driver, like you, you're doing it because you, you know, there's something you want to do, you want to create, you have there's some sort of built-in desire to do something and with that comes obsession and maybe there's sometimes there's probably a price to pay for that obsession, you know, uh, some people pay like a price in the pr- personal life or or they work themselves to death or whatever. So it's like, I don't know any casual 
success stories in armchair armchair CEO of a successful games company. I just don't, I don't, I never come across any of those. Maybe there is somebody out there who kind of had a part-time job as a game CEO, I don't know, but or founder. Yeah, I think, I think you need an obsession, I think, whether it's healthy or not. Yeah, yeah. You often hear about people sending emails in the middle of the night and people not, people don't really understand, but that, that is the sign of an obsession when, when the CEO is sending emails at 3 a.m. Um, I'm totally guilty of that. I mean, uh, like, uh, I try to restrain myself, but and now uh, Slack, you can actually time your Bacilla, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm totally guilty there. Hey, final questions, Holly. What's your favorite book and why? I think the two two books that I kind of remember, kind of one of them is uh, Dune. I thought, I thought Dune was a great book. It's uh, essentially like a world building story in a way, like this world created from nothing almost. Um, and uh, yeah, I love that. And uh, when I read that, and uh, I think Ma- Master Margarita, I love, I love that. That's that's a pretty <laughs> pretty good book. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you read that, but that was uh, that was an amazing. I thought that was an amazing amazing book when I read that. And so I was trying to think why Master Margarita was good. I thought it's got a. I don't, have you read it or? No, I have been recommended it. I haven't yeah. yet picked it up. It, it basically like it's kind of like a surreal, surreal story. You know, Russian author kind of Soviet era. You know, story and uh, and it's yeah, it's a surreal kind of some sort of normal situation with somebody living in Moscow. So I can't remember. And, and they you kind of weave in these kind of surreal things that happen. And, and but then in then he breaks it up with these totally breaks the style of the whole story and the way he writes it and breaks into these kind of not monologues but little 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 bits inside it that are i, I can't really describe it you, you have to kind of just read yeah. it just very it's just incredibly interesting because also at the time the author had to write about things in a way in a way carefully everybody had to artists had to be very careful about how they came out with the work because of kind of government scrutiny and, and the risks associated with the criticism you know so things like that so so it was just a you know, it was just a really intricate um, kind of um, and but the yeah beautifully written and, and yeah really special um, yeah i need to finally pick it up do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today i, I, I think the thing that shapes i guess people most is kind of just where the way you come from isn't it like you know i think regardless of where you come from so yeah i think that's a, it's almost like a romantic thing oh you know it's like you have to be careful not to fall into that kind of thing but look uh, yeah i think i think that shapes you you know where you come from and i think also what generation you are like of where you are on the chain you know like and i think that you know in iceland we like you know, we just come out of the the, the tough huts, and you know, it's a culture. It's been a very abrupt introduction to the world. You know, from like oh, just a few generations, almost like you know, my my grand my granddad was born in a tough kind of building. You know, like you know, it's so it's only it was only yeah. So yeah, the people in Iceland went through like a massive change. It's kind of skipped the industrial revolution and kind of jumped straight into the modern world and. And uh, so it was like a really hard working culture in 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 Iceland. And you'd you'd work uh, as teenagers, uh, my generation. You and I think still they still do. Like they work in the summers, sometimes multiple jobs, and and so you got that kind of yeah. People just work hard, you know. I don't know. It's, I don't know. If it's good or bad. Mm. There's there's definitely like a drive there. And I think also just the environment because you are in in Iceland. You are and obviously in kind of. Kind of on the outskirts of, uh, you know, further north you go, and so you're more aware of nature. Like you're, you're smaller. You know, you're much smaller. Like you're much more aware of nature. Like the weather can be crazy, crazy there. Uh, and also, my dad was, you know, was a fisherman, and and uh, so the nature is incredibly powerful. And you're just kind of small. And I think that makes certainly. I think in my case, it kind of makes you feel like, well, 
yeah, you know, you, you know, you, you may as well go for it. You may as well do things. It's kind of a little bit more existential. I don't know. I don't know. You have a similar thing in the rest of Scandinavia. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I think like the, the way you grow up definitely shapes you, how you approach work because it's, you get all the role models from there and then you start experimenting for yourself. But it, you always, I at least personally feel that I gravitate towards being an entrepreneur because I grew up around entrepreneurs. Mm. So it's, that's the way it goes. Yeah, I remember you saying that. I mean, my dad was an entrepreneur and I think if you, I think, yeah, if you think about uh, what he did, I mean, he had a much more difficult starting point than, than I did. And, and I mean, he, he bought himself a boat, I think he was 17 or something. And I th- he just like, and his, and his dad was like, God, what are you doing? Man? Like, um, and he, he bought it and, and, um, and then he, he had to sail it from like this, around the south coast of Iceland to Reykjavik or something. And uh, like, I mean, you know, he was like, he was a teenager, you know. And then when he, he didn't have any, like he had completely no money or anything to to get himself going. And and, uh, and by the time when I was a teenager, he he had like uh, these cargo ships, you know, had a shipping company and, you know, and so you know just from just pure great really i mean you know mm. he's uh, you know wow you know i think his story so i can't live up to his but he's done looking back at what it was uh, we used to live in the north of Iceland then when i was about six or seven and he he was uh yeah he he rented a boat to go uh, swim fishing in the north of Iceland and north of Iceland I mean in the winter I remember him going out kind of in the middle of the night like eight o'clock it's like completely dark in the winter and I just remember looking at it like, oh, shit, man, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, so him, you know, yeah, him, him just, um, yeah, kind of just being an entrepreneur, doing his own thing. And, but obviously, but I think also as a culture in Iceland, the, um, there's so many people who, who do their own thing. And, and probably it's a big part of it is just because you have, they have to, because uh, there are so few people or, and everybody is kind of just by default almost. Someone has to be self-sufficient and almost like, a, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to get on with it and do stuff and, there isn't a company to do, you know, everything, and you know, it's not, it's not a usually niched environment in aspects, and so people just have to find out how to do stuff, and you know, and obviously the whole, if you think about it, the whole kind of farming culture and stuff like that around that is essentially culture of entrepreneurship, and you know, people having to create their own environment and their own future from their own hands, kind of thing. Yeah, I think that resonates really well. Hey, Holly, this was so good. So many things. We could have just continued talking for, for ages, but like the end comes at some point. Like as the final question, I wanted to to ask if if there's entrepreneurs out there, people who are building their first company or second or third, like what's the best way for them to to reach out to you? I think I think LinkedIn is pretty cool. Yeah, I can you know I tend to use that. Yeah, they can uh, ping me on LinkedIn and yeah, just apologize beforehand if um, I'm slow to respond. So because it would be quite a lot of noise on that, but yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Got it. All right, sir. This was so good. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for oh, doing pleasure. this. My pleasure, man. Yeah, I hope, hope, uh, hope it's useful. So. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It is. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining this show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye bye.